Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 says this, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, and and saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. There was a great calm. The man marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Well, when I was growing up, I loved animals, and it's not surprising since my parents had dogs in their wedding, uh, but dogs were their thing, and I liked other kinds of animals. Uh, we had goats, we had ducks, we had chickens, we had rabbits, um, but I remember when I was a little kid, I watched the movie Babe, and I really wanted to have a pig. I thought it would be the coolest thing to watch that movie with a little piglet sitting beside me thought that would be the coolest thing. So I told my parents, and they're like, no, no, we're not getting a pig. But here's the thing. I was persistent. I wasn't giving up. So we had a tradition uh, on my birthday or my brother's birthday. We'd get to kind of do what we wanted to do. Like we'd go to the zoo or go see a movie uh, or go to a restaurant that we wanted. So for my birthday, I think it was my 13th. I don't remember exactly. uh, I said, I found this ad for potbelly pigs for sale. And I said, I want to go look at these pigs. And my mom said, well, you're not going to get the pig, but if you really want to, you can go look at them. That was my in. And so I said, okay, we'll just go look at them. So we drive out to Silver Creek, and uh, we get to this house, and it was before you know GPS were really used very much, and we weren't sure exactly where we were at. And we get to this spot, and there's this gate, and we're like, where's the house? And so we call the people, and then the gate opens, and this older gentleman comes out with this big shotgun. He's like, come on in. And we thought that was the end. But they showed us the, the little pigs, and they were really, really, really cute. And I thought that maybe I could talk my mom into getting them, but uh, she held firm. She said, no, we're not going to get one. Um, but here's the thing that, was, that, that got, me, got me the pig. Uh, the pigs were not in that great of condition. They were not treated very well. So my mom goes home and tells my dad about how these pigs are being abused and are not treated very well. And sure enough, the next day, my dad goes out to Silver Creek and picks up one of these pigs. And the only condition was, he said, that since I got the pig, the pig has to be named after me. And so the pig's name was Earl. So I was so excited. I'm so excited that I finally got a pig, but I had no idea what I was getting into. 
The first indication that I got that this wasn't what I thought it was uh, was when it first arrived back. It was like in this cardboard box, and the people who sold it said, like, make sure it doesn't get out or it's going to run away. And here's what I learned about pigs. Pigs do not like to be held. Pigs do not like to be snuggled. They don't like to be anywhere near you. And so I'm trying to hold this pig, and it just screams bloody murder. It wants nothing to do with me. Then we tried to bring it into the house for a while, and uh, it, it just wanted food. And so it went into Lazy Susan and, like, picked up cans and was, like, trying to open up the cans. And soon it got banished to the garage. And it was a nice pig, but it wasn't a pet. It was a farm animal. Didn't like to be cuddled and snuggled. It didn't like to be in the house. It liked to be outside. And if you gave it food, it was your best buddy. If you didn't have food, it was like, I don't have any interest in you. So I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought that I was getting a dog that looked like a pig, but it was a pig. It was a farm animal. Uh, And that farm animal lived for like 15 years after that. That was my gift to my parents when I left home. I had no idea what I was getting into, and sometimes I think we get into situations that are unforeseen. Maybe we don't know what we're getting into, and I think sometimes the same thing happens as we endeavor to follow after Jesus. We're not exactly sure what we're getting into. Uh, The confusion begins with the term follow itself. What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We talk about following someone on uh, social media like Twitter or Instagram. Uh, We talk about little kids following the leader. We talk about following directions. But what does it look like to follow after Jesus? Um, In Jesus' day, it was a little bit more clear in that following was kind of like coming under the mentorship or the leadership of a rabbi. So if if a disciple wanted to come under a particular teacher, he he would ask the teacher, can I follow you? And so it was kind of like a mentorship. So they had a little bit better idea, but even they didn't understand what Jesus meant when he asked them to follow after him. Because he's asking them to do things that's quite different than what other rabbis asked. But I think we all need clarity when it comes to what it looks like to follow Jesus because uh, sometimes we have expectations that don't meet reality and then sometimes we can get disillusioned. And maybe we think that God has failed us. We think that God hasn't come through for us. And I think there's many people that have wavered in their faith or maybe even given up their faith altogether because they didn't know what they were getting into. They thought following Jesus was going to be one thing, but it turned out to be completely different. They never counted the cost of following Jesus, never examined what it looks like. And I believe Jesus wants us to understand what it looks like and what is involved in getting Uh, to know him and following after him. And some of the hardest things that he said in Scripture were said to people that he loved, that he cared about, and told them the cost of following him. For example, to the rich young ruler in Mark, Jesus says, it says says in Mark, uh, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He loved him. But he wanted him to count the cost. He wanted to know what he was getting into. And for believers in Jesus, I think that this passage kind of gives us a picture of what it looks like to follow after Jesus so we don't become disillusioned. And for those of us who maybe aren't believers, we haven't taken that step of following after Christ, it kind of gives us an idea of what we're getting into if we choose to follow him. And so we can make a more uh, educated decision whether we want to follow after Jesus. And so I think there's three things in this passage we learn about what it looks like to follow after Jesus. 
the first thing is that Jesus calls us to a person, not to a place. He calls us to a person, not to a place. There's a crowd that surrounds Jesus, and Jesus gives orders to go to the other side of the lake and see Galilee. And yet before he does so, a, a scribe, a person who is an expert in the law, comes up and says to him, uh, I will follow you, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, and the way that Jesus responds is interesting. And kind of given the context of, of, of where this is happening and what, how Jesus responds, this person is probably not giving an unqualified commitment. He's probably not saying, okay, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. What he's doing is kind of a more contextual, particular response. So Jesus is leaving. He's going across the Sea of Galilee. And so this man is saying, okay, where are you going? Where are you going? I'm going to follow you to the other side of the lake. He's not saying, I'm going to follow you wherever you go forever. I'm just going to follow you where you're going right now. Uh, one scholar uh, translates this, this verse literally this way. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you may be going to. Tell me where you're going on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to follow you there. It wasn't an unqualified commitment. And Jesus responds and says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus' ministry is an itinerant ministry. He's going to move from place to place. And those who would follow him would not have the security that was offered to other people, and even the security that was often offered to the natural world, to animals. And so I believe Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you're following a person. You're not following me to a place. Let's say that your best friend or your spouse calls up and says, hey, do you want to go out for dinner tonight? Now, assuming the conditions are right and, you know, there's nothing that's keeping you from doing that, you're probably going to say, sure, let's go. And then the next question is, where do you want to go? And what time do you want to go? And, you know, if it's someone you care about, if it's your wife or your best friend, you might even go someplace that you don't necessarily want to go. You know, if, you know, I'm not real big into seafood, but if my wife wanted to go out for seafood, maybe I'll go out with my wife for seafood because I'm going with her. But let's say you have a friend that's more of an acquaintance. You don't know them really well, don't have strong feelings of attachment. They call you up and say, hey, you want to go out for dinner? You probably wouldn't give an unqualified yes. You'd probably ask, oh, like what time do you want to go? Where are you planning on going? Are there other people going? You'd ask more questions before you gave a yes. And many people, when it comes to following after Jesus, they kind of take it in the second sense there. It's like, okay, where is Jesus calling me to go? Uh, how long am I going to be there? And then if we like the answer, then we say yes. But Jesus demonstrates in this passage, he's not calling us to that kind of commitment. He's calling us to follow after him wherever he takes us. That our yes would be on the table to wherever he would have us to go. Sometimes we, if God, you know, if we feel like God is taking us somewhere that we like, if you know, hey, he's taking us to a place of financial security or leading us into this relationship, then we're like, awesome, I want to follow after Jesus. But if he's going to take us into suffering, we're like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. But Jesus demonstrates in this passage he's requiring a commitment to him, to him not a commitment to a destination. It's not what, Jesus is, what following Jesus is all about. When we follow Jesus, our yes is on the table. Peter wrestles with this at the end of the book of John after Jesus rises from the dead. Uh, it says in 
John chapter 21, 18 to 22. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk and wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And rather saying this, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus, uh, Peter's being reinstated after he had denied Jesus, and he's like, yeah, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm, you're going to follow me, and it's going to mean that it costs you your life. Uh, tradition has that Peter was crucified. Uh, the legend has that he was crucified upside down, that he didn't want to be crucified the same way as his Lord. Uh, that's where he was heading. That's his destination. Now, he was going to do a lot of ministry in between there. He was going to do an incredible work in the early church, but that's his end. And, and then Jesus is declaring that to him, uh, and Peter's like, well, I don't know if I want to go down that path. Like, I want to follow you, but I don't know if I want to go down that path. Like, what about John? Like, what's, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, well, even if I want to keep him alive till I return, which, of course, wasn't the case, even if I want to keep him alive forever, that's my calling for him. It's not my calling for you. He says, you follow me. And so Jesus is calling us to follow a person, not a place. Think about the calling of Abraham. And God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, to leave your homeland, go to the land that I will show you. He could have come up to Abraham and gave him a pamphlet and said, here, look at this Canaanite real estate, prime Canaanite real estate. This is where you're going. He could have given him a timeline of how, uh, how he was going to become a great nation. He could have given him a bonus. Hey, if you go now, you'll become the forefather of the Messiah. But he doesn't do that. He says, leave and, I'll, and go to the land I'll show you. Why doesn't he show him a destination? Because he doesn't want Abraham, or he doesn't want a scribe, or he doesn't want us to be in love with a place or a plan. He wants us to be in love with him. He calls us to a person to follow after him, not to follow a plan or follow him to a destination. Second thing he shows us is the cost of Christ, the call of Christ takes precedence over all. Another man comes up to him and says, Lord, uh, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus' response seems pretty callous on the surface. He says, let, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know, we read that, and it's like, wow, that was pretty harsh. Like the man's father just died, and Jesus says, just, oh, yeah, just go let him be buried. You know, let the dead bury him. Um, that's really, looking at the context, that's probably not the case of what happened. Um, if this man's father had just died, if, say, he died that morning or the day before, he would not be out listening to Jesus on the countryside. He would be taking care of the burial preparations. And so it's not as if this man, his father just died, and, oh, Jesus is saying, oh, you can't go to your dad's funeral. No, that's not what he's saying here. Uh, there's two possible options. The number one is that this man's father had already died, uh, maybe sometime before he'd already been buried, and there was a tradition at Jesus' time where the eldest son would return to the grave of the father a year after they died, and they would collect their bones, put them in a little 
box, ossuary, and then put that into the wall. Uh, so he may have been asking for a year's delay or so before he could follow Jesus. Uh, but more likely, his father probably isn't really dead at this point. Uh, most likely, it's kind of a phrase saying, oh yeah, let me go take care of my father and, and, and bury him, and after he's gone, then, then I'll go and follow you. And that could have been an indefinite period of time of 5, 10, 15, 20, who knows how long his father was going to live. And, and really, in essence, in essence, what he's saying is, I want to follow you, but not yet. And how many people have said that? I want to follow you, but not right now. Not right now. I have other things that that are more important to me. Uh, Maybe someday I'll follow after him. And Jesus says here that the commitment to follow after him takes precedence over any other commitment. Now, what Jesus says here isn't shocking in the sense that he's not saying, okay, you can't go to your father's funeral. Um, And by the way, it's not like he was calling them to leave, like, and go to a foreign country. He probably would have seen his father. But there was one aspect that was shocking, and that was in the Jewish world, honoring one's parents was like the top commandment, one of the top commandments. And that kind of took precedence over any other commandment except for honoring God. And so the fact that Jesus demands that kind of commitment indicates, of course, that he is God, that he takes precedence over anyone and anything else, that there are no valid excuses for not following him. That there's no, no one that takes precedence over him. Those who follow him must be committed to him above all else. In addition, following him means forsaking any other sources of commitment. Any other people or things that we might follow. Just like a man or a woman comes to their wedding day with a commitment to forsake all others. The follower Christ comes to Christ, enters into a relationship with that same commitment. That there will be no rivals. That he would be on the throne. So the call of Christ takes precedence over all. Finally, the call of Christ is perfectly safe but fraught with danger. The call of Christ is perfectly safe but fraught with danger. doesn't seem like it makes sense. Uh, But put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, Uh, the disciples who were in the boat with Jesus. They had just heard the Sermon on the Mount sometime before. They had just heard the kind of the cost of discipleship. And they're probably thinking to themselves, we're the committed Like, we're going to follow Jesus wherever he goes. We are committed to Jesus. And then they get in the boat, and Jesus leads them right into a storm. Not just a storm. Like, this is a severe storm. The the boat is being shook. The boat is being swamped with water. There's wind. There's rain. Maybe lightning. Who knows? This is a life and death situation. And they're freaking out about this. The boat's close to to going down. And the scene is kind of humorous in a sense because, I mean, all of this is happening and Jesus is sleeping. I mean, how could he be sleeping when there's water pouring into the boat, when the wind is howling, when the waves are crashing, when the boat is being tossed back and forth, when the lightning is striking down on the water? How could he be sleeping in such an environment? And the disciples are screaming and they cry out to him and say, Jesus, save us. We are perishing. And Jesus' response is quite remarkable. He says, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Why are you afraid? I mean, again, that, like, Jesus, do you not see what's happening? I mean, it's pretty obvious why we're afraid. The boat is about to go down. We are about to die. It's obvious, right? But I think this passage shows us a couple things. 
We make a big mistake if we think that Jesus won't lead us into the storm. Sometimes Jesus leads us right into the heart of the storm. Sometimes Jesus leads us right through the valley of the shadow of death. So we make a mistake if we believe that Jesus won't lead us into the storm. Sometimes he does. He led Jesus to the cross. And before we get to the resurrection, we need to walk the road to the cross. We make an even bigger mistake if we believe that Jesus will leave us in the midst of the storm. He'll lead us into the storm, but he won't leave us in the storm. He'll be with us. He promised us he'll never leave us or forsake us. And those who are believers in Christ, we can find safety in the presence of the king. It's interesting that as, as uh, he addresses this, this, these disciples, he's in essence addressing believers. He doesn't say that these people lack faith, that they don't have any faith, but they have little faith. Their faith is weak. Their faith is deficient. They are believers in some sense. Sometimes we follow after Jesus and Jesus leads us into the storm and sometimes maybe it feels like he's sleeping. Like he feels like, it feels like he's not present. But let's not forget that the presence of Christ is always with us. As the psalmist said in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The storm is scary. The valley of the shadow of death is scary. The dangers are real. And, you know, and sometimes we think about uh, not having fear, and we think of, okay, I don't have to have fear because God's going to remove the storm. God's going to keep me away from the valley of the shadow of death. But that's not the case. He walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us into the storm, but we don't need to be afraid because he's with us. Not because the storm isn't real. The storm is real. The storm is dangerous. The storm is deadly. But we don't have to be afraid because the king of kings is with us. So it makes sense of Jesus' question. I think Jesus is really asking the question, why are you afraid when I'm with you? It's not just why am I afraid. It's why am I afraid when I'm with you? Yes, there's a storm. Yes, it's scary. But I'm with you and I'm not going to leave you. It's a question I think perhaps we should ask ourselves more. Why am I afraid when Jesus is with me? Fears no longer seem so big anymore. Following Jesus is both perfectly safe but also fraught with danger. So in conclusion, as followers of Christ, we're called to a person, not a place. We're called to follow Jesus above all things and we're called to places that sometimes are dangerous but also perfectly safe because of the presence of Christ. Some of you may have heard of the story of a, a man named William Borden. Uh, William Borden was born in 1887. He was incredibly wealthy. His family was involved in silver mining in Colorado, and he had want of nothing. He had everything that he could ever want or dream of. In fact, for his high school graduation, he was given a trip around the world. And, of course, this was before airplanes and uh, I, the cost of that would have been just exorbitant, probably taken the better part of a year. But he was given that as a gift. And he went to Africa and the Middle East and China. And as he went to those places, he just started to get a burden for people who were hurting. And he wrote back to his family and said that he wanted to become a missionary. One of his friends said that he was wasting his life becoming a missionary. 
that how could he throw his life away when he had so much potential, had so many resources, and he was going to throw his life away to become a missionary. Legend has it that in response to that, in his time with God, he wrote in his Bible two words, no reserve. He came back and went to Yale uh, University, and he was a different sort of student. He stood out from everybody else. He had a unique passion for God. Uh, he wrote in his journal uh, this. He said, say, yes to, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. He had a passion for God that was unmatched. He started a prayer group at Yale with just a few people. When he, attended, uh, when he started attending, there were about 150 people that were involved in prayer groups at some place on the campus. By the time he left, 1,000 of the 1,300 students were involved in prayer groups. Although he was incredibly wealthy, he was also incredibly humble. Uh, one of his friends wrote that he might also often be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor, hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. There's an English visitor to the United States who traveled a great part of the United States and asked what most impressed him about America. And he was said to have replied, the sight of a young millionaire kneeling with his arm around a bum in the Yale Hope Mission. After that, he graduated and uh, went to Princeton Theological Seminary, and then he graduated from that in 1912. Um, and then, apparently, the legend says he had several job offers, um, turned those down, and legend says that he wrote in his Bible no retreats, that he wasn't going back, that he was committed to follow after Christ to become a missionary. He had a desire to reach the Uyghur peoples, which you've probably heard about in the news uh, recently, people who persecuted in China. And he wanted to reach them with the gospel. Um, their Muslim people group spoke Arabic. And so he decided he was going to go to Cairo, Egypt, and he was going to immerse himself in the culture, learn Arabic, learn more about Islam, and then go on to China. And so he went there, and he was living with a family there just because he wanted to just learn everything he could about that culture. Um, and even while he was there, he was sharing Christ with those around him, handing out uh, pamphlets that he made uh, uh, just in kind of a Quranic style to reach people around him. But shortly after he arrived there, he was diagnosed with spinal meningitis, and three weeks later, he died. Never made it to China. But the legend says before he passed away in his Bible and time with God, there were two more words that he wrote in his Bible. The words, no regrets. His death became an inspiration for missionaries for generations. One of his biographers wrote this about him. A wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. A few years ago, uh, over 100 years after he passed away, there's a Yale graduate who went to Cairo, Egypt, to try to find uh, William Borden's grave. And he ended up finding it. It was in the American section of this grave site. And it was in the corner, and it was just in disrepair. It was, um, the cement was just kind of cracking, and the cement was getting, so you couldn't really read the inscription. And uh, the inscription on the original tombstone said, apart from Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Um, and so 
it was, and they had put a wall up, so now the, the, the um, headstone was facing the wrong direction, so you couldn't even read it. It was overgrown. And so he asked a magistrate to kind of fix up this tomb to honor the life of William Borden. And so they did so. They put in some trees, put like a little fence around it. They turned the headstone around. Um, they changed it from cement to marble so you could read it. And they copied over the inscriptions that were on the original tombstone, but they added the words, no reserve, no retreats, no regrets. Doesn't get any better than that. Whether we live to be 25 or 105, if we get to the end of our lives and our lives are marked, our pursuit of Christ is marked by no reserve, no retreats, no regrets, that's a good life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for the calling that you place on our lives, that you invite us to follow after you. Lord, for those who are not believers today, Lord, I just pray that they would find joy in you, to find that while there is a cost in following you, there's a much greater reward. For those of us who are believers in Christ, help us to trust you even in the midst of the storms. Lord, help us to follow you above all else. And Lord, as we live our lives, may we get to the end of our lives. May those same things be said of us. There's no reserve. Nothing we're leaving behind. There's no retreats. There's nothing we're growing back to. There's no regrets that all that we are is focused on following after you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we pray that you just give us the strength to follow after you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen.